May I ask that you uh, sit back down again and once again uh, thank you so much for being here today. And actually, we really did mean that. For those of you who are new or those of you that didn't take notice, uh, today is a after-church picnic, and we invite you to stay whether you brought something or not. I, I, I can honestly say what better thing do you have planned for the day? I can't think of, I mean, you might have some ideas. I can't think of any myself. So uh, we really do mean that. Please stay and get to know um, some of the great people here at Bergen Park Church. In the weeks I have left, I'm uh, telling you about the founders of Bergen Park Church. Now, the original founders uh, are probably in heaven because this church started in um, 1948 as an outreach of uh, Camp Raja Haji. But I arrived in 1997, and uh, there were certain families here then or who, or who came afterwards who really were involved in every facet of ministry in a much smaller church. And I want to highlight them for you for two reasons. First of all, that they should be honored for the hard work they've done here at Bergen Park Church over the decades. And secondly, uh, there's room for new founders. Why don't you think, as we get our new pastor, that you would be a founder along with him? People I want to highlight this morning are the Schrader family, but uh, especially Janet Schrader and David Schrader, who were waiting for us when Barb and I arrived with our family in 1997. They had been here already for four plus years. And when I arrived, they were involved in just about every facet of life at Bergen Park Church. Janet serving women's children's, women's ministry, children's ministry, but especially throughout the decades and in, on piano and keyboard in the worship ministry. Here's one thing that I noticed about Janet very early on, that she keeps track of every version of every song we've ever sung. So she could actually say, three years ago, we sang it using this chord. Amazing. So that helps her um, be able to know the structure of what's going on. But she has also been involved in so many other ministries here. David brought uh, his expertise most to major projects here at Bergen Park Church. I want to thank you, David, even though you cannot be here this morning, that you were primarily responsible for my first pay raise. May your tribe increase. And may there be a new founder uh, for Jason and his family as they come. Um, but he did this after an in-depth study of both the Evergreen community and the pastor's compensation around the country. He was involved in our first, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, offers to buy this property. Believe it or not, we finally got this on our third attempt, but we offered first in 1997 and 1999. He was involved in our financing group of this, uh, of this facility. One of the things, though, that I appreciate about David is that he has a real love for God's word. If he was here, you would know that if I died while preaching, he could stand up, open his Bible, and he has three sermons ready to go. <laughs> he does. No, honest, he does. Now, I'd rather he read mine, but that's okay. 
Um, he, uh, he is in his Bible, and uh, he, he has been instrumental in starting a Bible study at United Airlines um, down at the old airport. And more than that, as parents, you will find that their children are now serving here with us. David and Jonathan are uh, doing our custodial work on weekends. Isn't that great? What wonderful founders they've been. And we invite you. What will be the contributions you will make to the body of Christ here at Bergen Park Church in the years ahead? Well, you need to know when it comes to traditions that there were no two homes with more varied and different traditions than Barb's and Jim's. I came from a very silent home. Basically, talking wasn't allowed. Barb's was very expressive. (laughs) If you have 10 minutes to laugh till you fall on the ground, ask me about our first Christmas Eve together at her home. I felt like I was on the mission field because everything about it was a new culture to me. And uh, it is a long, long story I can't share with you now. Uh, Barb's, Barb's family is expansive. Uh, they're always bringing people into it. Mine was insular. My family was materialistic. Barb's was very spiritual. One thing I remember about a tradition of my family is the fact that we always took vacations. And uh, vacations to us were a good thing unless you're with my dad on vacation because he would like to drive. And uh, he believed that getting up at 4.30 in the morning, loading the car, uh, and then driving until breakfast time, and then uh, uh, having breakfast, driving again, uh, and then stopping for lunch, as well as stopping for gas, eating, going to the bathroom, getting in until we checked into the motel at night. His goal was not to see every state in the union. His goal was to get 550 miles per day. Uh, And he usually made that. Uh, So I want to say this. uh, This is the tradition that I'm not copying for my my family. But um, I, before I got into high school, saw 40 of the 50 states. Still 50, right? Okay. I saw 40 of the 50 states. It's just that every one of them was at 70 miles an hour. Zoom, 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 zoom. And so I could say, I've been to Oklahoma. I've been to Minnesota. I've been to Illinois. Just very quickly, okay, from the interstate and from the truck stops. I I say this because um, some traditions are worth keeping and some traditions, as I discovered, Uh, in terms of the future of our family, when I took a a visible, uh, uh, evaluative look at what my family's traditions were, I didn't want them for the next generation, for for our children. So uh, some traditions I keep from my family, some have been changed, but here's the question as we get into the Gospel of Mark this morning. What happens when, your tradi- when the traditions you keep for spiritual reasons actually erode your relationship with God? What happens if there's certain uh, Christian traditions that you keep, but the long-term effect is your relationship with God diminishes? Jesus has many run-ins with religious leaders in his three years of ministry, and they have established and perfected their traditions over literally hundreds of years. And each of them would start with the law of Moses. They could point to what Moses had said. 
especially in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but over the centuries to show how much they desire to, to please God and show their love for them, these leaders add to these traditions, enhance these commandments, and perfect them. And all of these so that they could say, my generation and myself, I have a greater zeal for God than anyone around me. You see, that's fine for them. But what happens when they expect the same for you? This is when Jesus meets the super saints, as I say. And we've been exploring in the Gospel of Mark what, what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, God in the flesh. Because if we know what God is like in the flesh, we will have a better understanding of what God is like in heaven. And more than that, how we can relate to that God. Many of you come from a background of many rules, not just in your homes, but in your churches. As we go through our Welcome to the Family class, many of you have mentioned the rules that you had to keep uh, in your previous church. And uh, if that is so, understand you will identify with the passage we're in this morning, but you shouldn't like it. Uh, and, and for those of you who say, you know, I grew up in a church of rules, Jesus has just two words for you. Stop it. Stop it now. And whatever you do, if you want to continue, do not expect others to do what you are trying to stop doing. So Jesus has many pointed conversations with religious leaders, uh, the, the leaders of the Jews. And they are called Pharisees and teachers of the law, meaning the law of Moses. They argue in previous chapters about the following issues. Jesus socializes with sinners. You don't do that. Jesus says, they're my target. He targets sinners. They argue about Jesus and his disciples not fasting. And Jesus answers, when I'm around, it's time to party. They criticize him about doing miracles on the Sabbath. And he tells them that as God's son, he rules the Sabbath. The Sabbath does not rule him. And they claim that to have authority over demons, he must be empowered by Satan. And his response is, Satan is a lot smarter than that. Satan wouldn't destroy himself. Time after time, he is in conflict with these religious leaders who eventually arrest him and crucify him. And the idea here is that we, we believe that by keeping these traditions that we will show our zeal for God and the whole nation should follow us. So here's, here's the next one. Jesus and his disciples do not wash their hands when they return from the marketplace and go into their houses. Now, washing your hands seems like a, a mountain out of a molehill, doesn't it? It's, it's a stupid argument. But they believe they're right. And Jesus says, well, as long as you bring it up, we want to find out what it means to be in a place uh, of following Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and what it means and what it does not mean, and what traditions you should keep, and what traditions maybe you should let go, and why. So the first one deals with hygiene versus holiness. And Jesus, I know many of you are going to say, well, doesn't the Bible say godliness or cleanliness is next to godliness? No, Benjamin Franklin said that. 
Uh, and I don't think he got it from the Bible, okay? So Jesus points out the difference between their religious hygiene, but also their lack of true holiness before God. I'm in Mark chapter 7, and reading about how this incident begins in verses 1 to 5. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees, this is in parentheses, and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, not a pre-surgery washing, okay, a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Big, big word there, tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? You get the, the imagery there, the, the emphasis of what they're trying to tell Jesus? Why don't you be holy like us? That's a summary, okay? And, and why not? I mean... If you go into most restaurant restrooms and you're washing your hands, you'll probably see a sign there. And the sign declares that if you're an employee and you've come into the restroom, you must wash your hands after using the restroom for any reason. Growing up, we used to sit at the dinner table and my family never said grace. Uh, but instead, we would always begin with this phrase, did you wash your hands? And of course, we always said yes. We never did, but we said yes. Lying comes naturally to me, okay? Uh, and, and then we begin to eat. You know, I grew up in a home, and so is the United States of America. We don't want to get communicable diseases. So we've been called germaphobes. However, the tradition that begins with Moses declares that priests are to wash their hands before they entered the tabernacle, the, the meeting place with God there in the wilderness. It was a tent. But any time the priest, such as Aaron, would go in, uh, Aaron was told, wash your hands as a symbol, a sign that you are clean or righteous before God. It's a ceremony of holiness, not that it makes them holy, but it's not about hygiene. Remember that song, Give Me That Old Time Religion? I'm going to quote it here. I'm going to change a few words. It was good enough for Aaron. It was good enough for Aaron. It was good enough for Aaron. And it's good enough for me. And then they'd add a final verse there, I mean, a final line. And it's good enough for you, Bart, you know. And you better do it too. You see, now hundreds of years later, we're talking about 1,500 years later. These people are not entering the tabernacle, but they're going to the marketplace. And then they return to their homes. But when they were at the marketplace, they might have bought their food from people who were not Jews. They're called Gentiles. That's about, uh, you know, 89% of the population of that time. Uh, they were uh, considered foreigners and unclean and unhealthy by the way that they lived. They didn't keep the same 
uh, religious codes. So the, uh, the religious leaders were not germaphobes. I guess you could call them gentilophobes, okay? And I don't want to get that word wrong. Okay, so they're afraid of Gentiles. And Jesus quotes a prophet who said about 700 years earlier uh, something that's very crucial that the Jews don't want to listen to. Uh, It says in verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So on the outside, you see, these people look really good. Washing your hands after you go to the marketplace. But in the inside, Isaiah declares 700 years earlier that they are far from God. On the outside, they have clean hands. On the inside, however, there are many Gentiles who are closer to God than these experts in the law. Now, let's understand our species a little bit and understand how we get here, because it's really not so much a religious thing as a human thing. We're doing anthropology uh, every week as we go through the Gospel of Mark so we can understand Christology better and see the distinctions between the two. It is our human nature. It is, believe me, each of you usually likes to find something that's okay and make it better. It's who we are. So as an example, you take some wheat and you grind it and it gets to be flour, you add some water, you add some oil, you add some yeast, you bake it, and out comes bread. Well, how do we make bread better? We slice it. Whoever was the bread slicer did not get a a patent on that. Otherwise, that person would be richer than God himself. So uh, we learn to slice bread. We have spoken languages, and we realize that to... Uh, that spoken languages need to go further, we need written languages, whether it's pictorial or we find uh, things that, uh, that are like letters. We, we learn how to write things down. Then we put those things into books. And then along comes Gutenberg and invents the printing press to make books more affordable. And then along comes Steve Jobs and says, I can give you thousands of books right in here. You don't need a library anymore. You just need a cell phone. And some of you have your Bible there, and I think that's marvelous as long as you use the app. Uh, So uh, we like to take things and make it better. And when it comes to sliced bread, you got to say, brilliant, now I can invent the sandwich. When when it comes to uh, books, you go, great, now my my backpack isn't as heavy. We make things better so our lives are better, and that's humanity. But when it comes to moral teaching, we want to improve it to the point of perfectionism. And then we demand that others do the same, and that's called moral slavery. And those who keep those traditions can look pure and righteous in public, but their souls on the inside are withered and brittle and smutty. And that's what Jesus tells them. You're doing some really wonderful things, but your hearts are far from me. 
You say things with your lips, but your souls are distant. And now he gives some suggestions, some examples. The first one is about God and parents. That was the prime example that he goes to. Now, some of these religious leaders were dishonoring their own parents, but keeping what they believed was the tradition of the elders. It's called Korban. You dedicate all of your possessions and wealth to God. Oh, you are such a good giver. Oh, you are so generous. You are going to be on the hall of fame at, your, at, your, at the tabernacle because you've given so much. You are so dedicated to God. But in the meantime, before God gets it when you kick off, in the meantime, that is yours to manage and yours to spend. The result is this. Your parents, as they get older, come across some really hard times. They've used all of their savings and retirement in, in terms of medical expenses. Uh, and so they come to you and they say, um, I think we're going to have to move back in. Or they come to you and they say, we, we need you to help us with money. And your answer is, Mom and Dad, I would really like to help you out. But you understand, this isn't my money anymore. It's not my house. It's God's. Sorry. <laughs> and in applying this designated gift to God, they disobey the commandment that says, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. The practice of Korban is not in the law of Moses. It's an addition to show greater dedication to God. But it's an excuse to disobey the fifth commandment of the Big Ten Commandments, that you will honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. And so they are really uh, saying, I am throwing out the promised blessing of honoring you by honoring God instead. It should never get down to that. Then he has another example. Is he's alone with some of the, um, uh, another crowd around him and his disciples there with him. And it refers to, a, to another practice of avoiding food that makes us unclean uh, religiously. Moses lists these foods. You can find them in um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, Deut and Deuteronomy. But Jesus makes this comparison, this distinction. He says, you know, it's not really what you take into your body that makes you unclean. It, it's what comes out of your body. And of course, there's a play on words there. You know, it's not excrement, but it's really what's coming back out of the mouth. So it's not what you take in that makes you unclean. It comes, it's what comes uh, with, out, you know, from inside out. Uh, it comes from within and comes out. Um, I believe that Jesus probably keeps the laws of Moses and eats what's in uh, in the Torah and, and does it fine. But he's trying to put it in a different perspective now and understand that sometimes we in the church uh, neglect uh, to have Jesus' attitude. We don't put it in perspective. In my decades of following Jesus, I've seen Christians um, hooked on many hobby horse sins, not of theirs, you understand, of others, okay? Or maybe things that they used to do and don't do anymore. Alcohol has been won in the church. And um, 
I have seen the devastation that alcohol can bring. And I have talked to parents as well as alcoholics and the way that they are chained and enslaved by alcohol is a tragedy. But God never says be a teetotaler. We are now in this season where we're trying to figure out what do we do with legalized marijuana? I grew up saying I'd never touch it. I, I left parties because people were smoking it. Uh, I, 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 but I've also sat down and I've sat down with people who say, this is the only thing that I can take that handles my pain, that manages my pain. But I've also been in places where people are just stupid <laughs> because of what's going on there. Luckily, most of them get over it, but you know, sometimes we're stupid all of our lives. I've been with people who have more toys than others. And, and, and sometimes they do it for show, not just for their enjoyment, but to show it off to others. You see, Jesus wants us to look at what comes from the inside and then will show on the outside. No matter how religious we may be, understand that we are fallen creatures and we have hidden, uh, hidden weaknesses. We also have visible ones. He's getting at the hidden ones because these people try so hard to look perfect on the outside. Uh, they think that by looking good on the outside that everybody will assume that they are good on the inside. And Jesus tells us that those who seem to exert so much effort to look good outside neglect to humble themselves because of what is inside. What's inside is stopping them from humbling themselves. And Jesus calls this, this rejection of what he wants for our lives, what he calls it the heart. The heart, he means, is not the, cardi, you know, the cardiac muscle. It is the core of the real person, the seed of our thoughts and emotions. And friends, when I evaluate my thoughts and my inner emotions and my motivations, I'm not that good a person. I guess I'm going to be working on it the rest of my life. 70 years ain't enough. But when you look on the outside, I'm a pretty good guy. How do you evaluate yourself? That's the issue. How do you say, I'm good, I'm bad, look at all I've done? I think many of us have this inner desire to prove to ourselves and to others that we're not fallen, but we're really pretty good people. Not perfect, but pretty good. One of the disciples who heard this teaching was Peter. And only a few years after Jesus' resurrection, Peter is in the midst of a big dilemma. He has been a good Jew all of his life. And now, as a follower of Jesus, he has become the chief apostle. The, the head kahuna, you might say, of the church uh, after Jesus' resurrection. And he knows that Jesus is Lord of all humanity, but he has also shown his devotion for God by keeping all of the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament for his entire life. Now that is living on the outside to have an outside holiness that hopefully will remind you of being holy inside. 
So while he is waiting for some food to be delivered, he's up on a rooftop and he goes into a trance and he has um, a vision that is so profound and God speaks to him so deeply and, 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 it's, and it's really uh, almost like an a, a eight-point magnitude earthquake in, in terms of his religious structure. Three times he hears this voice and it's God wanting to make his point. He says, Peter, eat anything and everything from now on. And that also means accept anybody who eats anything and everything from now on. Well, Peter objects. His tradition is to eat according to the law of Moses. There's nothing wrong with that. It's called kosher. Now, uh, God wins and Peter has to drop off his lifelong outer tradition to eating according to the law of Moses. But because God wins and Peter, you might say, loses or agrees with God, uh, this week I'm going to have breakfast several times. And uh, when I have breakfast, I'm going to probably have eggs in any way I want. But then I'll look at, you know, what can I have next to my eggs? And I'll see ham steaks. I'll see bacon, pork bacon, not that turkey stuff, okay? <laughs> and I'll see ground sausage. And I'll order it, and I'll say, yum. And I'll feel no sense of unrighteousness or uncleanness. Maybe a little full, but I will feel fine. On Wednesday night, I'm gathering for dinner with friends I've had since 1970. We went to seminary together. And as I gather with them, I already know what I'm going to order because it's a barbecue place. I'm going to order baby back ribs. And the server is probably going to look at me and say, you get two sides with those baby back ribs. What would you like? And she'll say, we have broccoli. We have lima beans. Uh, we have green beans. And I'll put my hand up and say, um, no vegetables, please. It's against my religion. <laughs> we have six or seven nutritionists in the church. I want you to know I do eat vegetables. I eat vegetables because I know it's good for my health. I have yet to find any food that strengthens my faith. Any food. Or any food that destroys it. You say, what about angel food cake or devil's food cake? No, there's no food that does that. There is nothing that can do that. You are Christ, and you are Christ alone. There's nothing that I can eat that pleases God. Now, I've overeaten. I don't think God's pleased with that. Okay. Now, uh, though this might seem to be a, a new thought to Peter... Jesus speaks often about the traditions of man and his Judaism versus the real word of God. And this was one of them about not washing. And God speaks the same truth 750 years before Jesus through the prophet Micah. You see, Micah brings up this as he's talking to a, a fallen nation of northern Israel. He's talking to them about how far away they are from God. And so they say, well, what should we do? What can bring us back to God? 
And he asked this great and wonderful question. What must I do to show my love for God, my zeal for God? And so they asked this question. What shall I bring? Should I bring a burnt offering? How about a year old calf? How about thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Or how about the ultimate sacrifice? Well, next to ultimate sacrifice. How about my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the answer that Micah gives, God's word, is something that many of you have memorized. I've done it in a different translation, but it goes like this. He goes, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. All three are very difficult for me. Very difficult. What does it mean to act justly? It means you don't seek special favors and you don't give them. You don't hurt people because they're not on your favorite list. What does it mean to show mercy? It means you learn to forgive rather than seek revenge. And you also are helping the poor who cannot help themselves. What does it mean to walk humbly with God? To me, humble means that you know Jesus as Savior and you are not the Savior. There's no way that you can have a, a, a list and, and, a, and a book of good works that gets you saved. You understand humbly means I have to receive the forgiveness that God offers me. It also means that you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, the one who will lead your life. And that means that though you have authority in this life and responsibility for others, you do not dictate to them how they should walk humbly with God. Let me give an example. Before I do this, I think I better say I'm making fun of myself. All right. I have in my hand the one-year Bible. And uh, since about 2005, I have been uh, taking this one-year Bible and doing what it says, reading through it, once, once a year. And it's divided into 365 days worth of readings, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. So the, the idea is that within a year, you will have read the whole Bible. Isn't that a good thing? How far along are you right now in your one-year Bible? Oh, you didn't do it this year? Oh and you call yourself a Christian. Is your Bible used as much as mine? Look at that. Even the duct tape is wearing away. <laughs> I win, you lose. Can I go further? I'm already, it's only July 16th, and I'm already on December 18th. How far along are you? Do you see how we can take something great Make it our tradition and use it to show self-righteous behavior out of the heart. And what comes out of my mouth 
shows what's really going on inside, whether I am clean or unclean. Now, I want to, you to know, I enjoy the one-year Bible. I plan to do it next year, too. And between the end of July and, and, and the end of December, I'm going to mess around with my quiet times and do other stuff. I find that's a practice that's helped me know God, that helps me be a better teacher, and helps me refer to passages because I read them uh, at least once a year. And, and the more that I read them, the more it comes up. And it, it's had great effects on me. But I can't dictate that you do it. But I do know this, that when I take a good practice and demand that you do it, I have become involved in what I call a self-righteous tradition. But over the years, the very Bible that I have looked at has also been the one that has prompted me to go back to what Jesus said, to what Jesus is telling me to be, and what Jesus is working on in my soul. I have three verses that I want to close with you in prayer. And I want these to be like a, a bubble bath, okay? You just soak in them for a little bit. Just, just sit in them. I'm going to read them slow, and I'm going to give some, uh, some time to wait. But this is my prayer as I close. The idea here is that Scripture is designed to wash our hearts, not give us a huge list of do's and don'ts. Scripture is designed to put us in a right relationship with God. We're understanding his commands, but also his love. So let's just be quiet now. And remembering that this dealt with Jesus not washing his hands. What God says. Father, we come to you now and we realize that if we do... Stop and recognize what you have told us. Your heart for us is amazing. Your desires for us are more relational than regulational. And we thank you. Psalm 19, 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. Words and meditations. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. and lead me in the path everlasting. Search me, O oh God. Let me be quiet enough before you to acknowledge that you are perfect and I am not. Search me. Point them out. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.
Father, out of our heart. May we recognize those things that aren't worthy of you and confess them. And out of our hearts, may you be renewing us daily to understand the joy that it is not to live by rules, but by the relationship you have offered to us. And Father, this morning, if some have come tired of church and all of its regulations, may they forget church and remember you. The one who has said, come unto me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and light. Father, may this high achieving fellowship of Christ followers take that to heart. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Let's stand.